0: self-deceiving cocksucker I am I thought when America took us in Bullock could prove a fucking resource look at him striding out like some randy
1: maniac bishop
0: Sheriff! About his duties to the camp huh? Luck troubled not jump out earlier huh Bullock? Might have found you mid-thrusted other business What is it? Taken by a vision? You would not want to be staring like that at me. It, it's it's only Bummer Dan, but
1: I, I think he's killed. Be where I can find you. I
0: ain't going no. What a force it was the put man
2: to the stooges? What a dicky pop was there.
0: Rolling around in the glass like a fader. A tiny English fader. For a seed had invented his boy Here he go, oh The
3: Morrissey is the only one who knows What well, he give up is there for the secrets inside
2: Hello, my name is Mr. B, the Gentleman Rhymer, and I am a Chap-Hop Superstar. This is Jim Burke, better known by his stage name, Mr. B. Over the last ten years, he's earned himself a cult following for his unique style of music, an exotic blend of old-school hip-hop with the aesthetic of Victorian dandiness. This
4: is Chap-Hop.
2: Hi, folks. This is Rand Paul, the junior senator from Kentucky. A lot of you know that I'm a big fan of being a libertarian. Heck, it's kind of my whole thing. As a libertarian, I'm sure that you already guessed that I am also a big fan of Bitcoin. Last week, the value of Bitcoin jumped dramatically, and it was all that anybody could talk about on Twitter. But right around the same time, news broke that the energy required to produce bitcoins was so astronomical that it was already exceeding the annual power usage of the country of Denmark. I'm not a tree-humping crust punk, but I do have a few opinions about wasting energy resources that could otherwise be turned into profit. So I says to myself, I says, Rand, what is that genre of literature and film that you love so much? The one that incorporates elements of Victorianism? with flashy gears, goggles, and hot air balloons? I'm talking, of course, about steampunk. It's the most imaginative thing out there. Libertarianism is also all about imagination, and it's no secret that the Venn diagram between libertarians and steampunks is actually just a circle. I'd like to invite each and every one of you humor and the abject listeners to join me on an exciting new adventure into the cryptocurrency game. It's a fully steam-powered form of money that allows its users to trade anonymously over a dark web constructed of pistons, valves, gears, and carbide. It's called Dirigible Coin because it floats around, unseen, above us at all times like airships filled with gentlemen and ladies adorned head-to-toe ink flowing lace and tweed. Dirigible Coin will be my entire platform for re-election to the Senate in 2018. Won't you join me?
0: Romans, crypto coin farmers, welcome back to another episode of the humor and the abject podcast, you silk road cruising, monocle wearing screedlers. This is Staffan Lee, the manager here at the podcast studio, which as of last week, is Sean's fucking kitchen. We're feeling so sassy to be able to bring you another episode and we'd like to give a quick shout out to Emily and Damon, both of whom signed on as subscribers on Drip in the last couple of days. You're both the best and I'm going to screedle you with hugs when I see you next. Our guest this week is Brian Bellot, and throughout the episode you're going to hear bits of found audio he's collected over the years that he was kind enough to share with us. Keep an ear out for those, baby. We're sponsored this week by a new rock supergroup featuring members of the Stooges fronted by the one and only Morrissey, as well as the newest cryptocurrency available, a steam-powered alternative to Bitcoin called Dirigible Coin. I'm already in an email argument with the people at Kickstarter about why our subscribers on Drip can't make their small monthly pledges using Dirigible Coin. I anticipate having this ironed out shortly. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this week's show. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney.
4: I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 31 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Screedlers, I've just wrapped up my three-month residency at Kickstarter. I was there September, October, and November, and I am now recording with a little home audio setup uh, right here in my kitchen in Brooklyn. I think it sounds pretty decent, but please excuse any inconsistencies in the audio as I get comfortable with this new crop of equipment and uh, the, the way that I put it together here at home. Got some new stuff coming in the mail I'm very excited about. Made possible in part, by those lovely uh, members among you who have subscribed to Humor the Abject on Drip. It feels pretty fun to record in my kitchen, and I actually just finished eating some ribs. Uh, This week, my guest is the artist Brian Ballot. I wrote about Brian's recent solo show, Dr. Kid President Jr. at Gavin Brown's Enterprise up in Harlem. It was up this summer did a review for art in america i loved that show it was really really fun he had all of this artwork that he had sourced from the collection of rhoda kellogg who was an early childhood educator several recreations of the children's art that he himself had done he created this great wallpaper based on the kids art and had a classroom right there on site where a bunch of different artists led classes for uh, schools from around harlem and the students came in made work their work then went up in the show and then there was this big event Uh, sort of to celebrate the kids' work and their families were invited and things like that. Really, really interesting and fun thing to be happening in the art world when so many things are total garbage and trash. You might have seen a video of Brian uh, on YouTube where he lights his head on fire repeatedly. Uh, We're going to talk about that today. And we're also going to talk about his recent piece for Performa, which is called People Pie Pool which was sort of a celebration or tribute to Dada performance. Um, so, without further ado, here is my conversation with Brian Velocco. I can see the time. Ooh. Nice. Thank you. I had some I had some mini Eltoids recently that I was uh, really hooked on. I kept I kept eating them. My dad used to eat Eltoids when I was a kid and I thought they were just insane. When I would You know mean that. like super powerful? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they blew my mind. Um so uh, Brian, welcome to Human the Abject. How how are you today? I am doing quite well. Yeah? Yeah. yeah, that is a lie. Yeah, that's a lie. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm doing quite well. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> Thanks for asking. Um, so I wanted to start things off by talking about. Uh, I understand that you've spoken before about the three C's of art. Am I correct? And that's color, comedy, and collage. Is that true? And Kentucky is the fourth. C. And Kentucky is the fourth C. Um, what? Why are those? Why are those important in your work? color, collage, and comedy.
1: Well, um, you know, when I'm occasionally asked to go around and visit a school and present a slideshow of my work, um, that format forces me to figure out what the hell I'm about. So I just came up with that. Um, It could be a little corny. We could add C for corny. I saw it. C I, for I, I collaboration. collaboration. I got it, it from a video from Cranbrook. Yeah. Another C. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. There's seven now. But, um, you know, that that's... It's, it's a weird... I'm a little apprehensive, you know, going to lectures. Half of me loves to blab on and to deconstruct and talk about why I do stuff. And then there's another part of me that just thinks an artist should produce something and not... Talk about the wiring, or the man behind the curtain, or the pain that goes, or or the joy that goes into something. Yeah. Um. Actually, just the other night, I watched Andy and Me. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. Um. Um. Well, it was a mixed bag for me. Yeah. A little bit. Um. And I, I thought, like, one of my heroes, Groucho Marx. Like, what, what would have it have been like if Groucho Marx was around? Now, and he sat around, and he kind of talked about his failed marriages or his alcoholism and I just wonder about our culture and how the overshare aspect of certain types of social media
4: you mean that uh like Groucho instead of being uh sort of judged by the merit of the work that it would be sort of like people want to see a three-dimensional person instead of an art type of thing
1: yeah so it's no longer the cartoon it now we're we're almost like his shrink or we're in Hmm. his shrink's office and it seems like a lot of artists kind of break open their their uh, skull in front of everybody and lay it out on a table and and I think that the academy encourages this type of thing. Yeah,
4: I was just going to ask if you thought that that was sort of symptomatic of art school.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just, I just felt that you know, I, I love uh, Jim Carrey. I love his, you know, when he was on, I wasn't paying much attention. I remember seeing Fire Marshal Bill. Oh, on in Living Color. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, I graduated college, moved back to Jersey, and um, was working at the mall. I was working at Johnny Rockets, and someone was like, you know, I was going on about Jerry Lewis. And the person was like, well, what about Ace Ventura? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Anyhow, I went, I I saw, and I laughed. But it's it's interesting because I think the course sometimes of an artist or of a comedian is that they're crazy and hilarious and then become sentimental and they want to save the world and they want to do like serious acting all of a sudden i mean we've seen this in jim carrey we've seen this in um robin williams oh yeah yeah um i don't wanted know. to do horror and things like that um <clears throat> well on the
4: on the side of doing things that maybe that you're serious about but don't come across as serious can can we talk a little bit about people pie pool your piece for performa that was a lot of that was five p's <laughs> Um, and kind of, uh, first of all, thank you for asking me to be a part of that. That was really fun. Uh, that oh, was, thank you for being part of that it. That was insane. But I, because I was performing in it, I only really was out in the front of house during that part. And yeah. the, the rest of it I spent, uh, for the most part, uh, downstairs in the dressing room and things like that. So can you kind of uh, walk through
1: where that project came from? And what the audience experienced? Ever since I was young, I really loved comedy. Um, my family was uh, obsessed with Woody Allen. Of course, that is a strange thing to think about now. But um, from Woody Allen, I was able to get into the Marx Brothers. So we're talking about 1983 or something. The Marx Brothers, uh, I love them so much. They These brothers who grew up in vaudeville, they had a very pushy mother that kind of got their whole career started. But what I love about the brothers is that the calamity is multiplied. Mm -hmm. And so there's a certain type of cacophony and mayhem that's created by these three brothers that are real brothers are not actors that didn't know each other and were jammed into movies, but they were brothers that had gotten into hijinks and caused problems along the vaudeville circuit since they were young. So the intensity in the, the... uh, absurdity they bring is a real one. Um, anyhow, uh that like went into Dadaism, you know, somewhere in high school when I decided that I wanted to be an artist. Uh, of course, what's the first thing you look at is Dali, you mm-hmm. know, but I quickly started to really prefer Dadaism. How did you find Dadaism in high school, like
4: pre-internet? Are you looking at books in a library, or how did? Yeah, how my did father
1: you? is an artist. He, okay, um, he's a photographer, so he had. You're like, a little man, inside track. Yeah, yeah, he, you know, um, he had a book on Man Ray or something like that. So I started reading up on that, and so characters like Tristan Zara mm-hmm. uh, and his writing became really interesting to me. So when I was approached to do performa. Um, 17 i was really excited because i found out that this year was um its focus was dedicating dadaism 100 plus years of dadaism had you done performa before or was this your
4: first piece in it
1: um i i did a piece for them only um for the gala for the dinner gala oh yeah they invited me to do a choral piece so um since we were at the gala but not invited to eat, I decided to make uh, a chorus called Me Want Food. and um, I I joke a lot about how when artists
4: are asked to perform at events and things like that, that they're the entertainment for dinner, but it sounds like quite literally
1: in this situation, you were the entertainment for dinner? Yeah, yeah. And um, Then there was another, I was involved in a performance. uh, Molly Lowe was invited to do a performance. I did some vocalizations um, for her. piece but um okay so when this was the opportunity was dropped in my lap I was trying to figure out what what I want to do and so I thought I, I of course I thought I can't just do this myself this isn't a solo act thing um I work a lot with the artist um Matthew Thurber so me and Matthew do a lot of impromptu performances and have made songs and all this stuff for close to the past 10 years I didn't want to make it a duo either. And I, I started to think that if you really want to bring the heat, if you want to bring Calamity, you got to bring a good group of people. Like an ensemble cast. Yeah. And so th- from there, I you know, from thinking of the Marx Brothers, I started to think of Charles Ives as another um, composer, American composer from the turn of the century who I really liked, who was obsessed with the sound of clashing marching bands. Hmm. And so, um, you know, another kind of, like, it's a a music that's composed around cacophony and dissonance. um, But as opposed
4: to just noise, it's two very structured things that are kind of smashed together. Like, there's there's an order, it's just uh, when the two things are put together, that order is kind of shattered for anybody's listening, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and a lot of times the the two tunes are of course in different keys or different tempos um and they are just um smushed up on each other. And um so I started to think, you know, I didn't want to do a solo, didn't want to do a duo, wanted to make this calamity and I thought like going back to uh the Marx Brothers, there's um this movie called Night at the Opera. And it's a scene where um, Groucho's in a boat, and he finds out that his two brothers are stowaways in his luggage. And what uh, uh, occurs is now everybody's coming to this little stateroom, like, you know, different people like um, waiters and plumbers and everybody from A to Z until this room is completely packed thick. And, um, so I thought of the idea of like a door jam or a cramped elevator ride Mm -hmm. as something that I wanted to do. I mean, kind of people pie pool is kind of that kind of notion has that notion of like, um, kind of borderless. Everybody's crammed into a, a small space, um, so when I started working on the performance, I started to think about who could bring a certain type of mania or bring, um, who who are the performers I knew that were crazy, who could have <laughs> conniptions on stage, you know, um, who you could probably worked with a lot of people like that over the years, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I started to go through my telephone book and like kind of list, oh, this person would be great. I would love to have this person or that person. But then I started to become utterly aware of the fact that that Dadaism is is actually a hundred plus years old mm-hmm. and that um someone having a conniption on stage can be um um intense, but it has its own history it has its own um yeah I mean it's it's not it doesn't have the impact it would have 50, 60 years ago.
4: Sure, yeah I mean it's it's sort of like trying to explain um, the fountain to a student in art school right now because they're sort of like, so what? They yeah, put a urinal in the gallery and it's sort kind of like the context is vastly important in that. And yeah, if you show people just uh, complete insanity in 2017 or someone flipping out on stage, it's it's not really going to ruffle their feathers the same way that would have to a, a different audience quite some time ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so while I was working on it, I was also thinking about uh, one of Tristan Zara's comments, um, which was, uh, a true Dada would hate Dada. And... It's actually a game that me and my friend Billy Grant play around the studio. We try to think about what would be we what would be the opposite of of you or your personality. So mm-hmm. for us we would get into accounting or we would get into civil war reenactment or collect Coca-Cola memorabilia. Like we're trying to think of something that would be antithetical. And so that that uh, comment about that Dadas True Data's hate data made me think that I had to counteract these um artists that I asked to have a conniption on stage. So I started to think about different um types of performance and maybe ones where even the performers don't necessarily consider themselves performers. So I st- I thought of teachers. Mhm. I thought of, you know, um you know, teachers, There's an auctioneer, uh, lecturers, there, where... yeah, an <laughs> auctioneer, a gym teacher. You know, uh, a yoga teacher. I started to think about adding them to the pie pool to kind of beef up the um, the difference between stuff, and also make people kind of scratch their heads. Like I saw someone like just have a conniption, and now I'm seeing someone talk about particles. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I wanted to bring that it all into one performance and have the edges kind of overlap.
4: Were there any pieces in it that <clears throat> beforehand you thought were going to um, be sort of, Maybe like a a palate cleanser or a calmer piece that during the actual performances, it turned out that either the people inhabiting them or the or the audience response was just way more jacked up than you thought it was going to be or or even vice versa.
1: Well, the thing was, uh, to tell you the truth, um, the performances, I mean, um, each night they were dramatically different um, and, and a lot of it had to do with the audience reception. The first night, the audience was really with us. Mm hmm. And, um, at the, towards the beginning of the performance, we do a kind of, i lead a, a durational kind of task orchestra, it's called. And there's two people flanking either side of the stage, dropping, um, golf balls one at a time. Oh, I heard that from downstairs. (laughs) Off, (laughs) off of ladders. And, um, we definitely wanted to space out so when the one golf ball, uh, had dropped, I wanted to hear it go pop, 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 and Mm -hmm. roll. And the first night, the audience really got it, and like actually every um, golf ball that dropped kind of got personified Uh the way it, you know, um, how it fell. Well, the second night, I could tell that the audience was not interested in this. And it, it we didn't get that a uh, laugh out of them until a good twenty minutes in. Of the you know?
4: whole of the whole performance?
1: Yeah. It seemed it seemed like the second night they were a little bit more just not with us. Uh-huh. I, mean, I did have a lot of family the first night. I did I know that Jesse Greenberg's um sister was there there was a lot of people rooting for us and i think that you know it was just interesting
4: there's almost like i mean maybe that opening night thing too is there's a thing where the people who are part of that really supportive uh network they get tickets for the first night like they they make sure to come they want to see it fresh right off the bat and then the second night is just a slightly different audience yeah composition i mean i i saw from the stage i saw a lot of familiar faces the first night and then the second night i didn't really know too many people I mean, yeah. it's a little hard to see. We were only up there for five minutes during the part that I was in, but uh, I saw all these faces the first night, and then the second night, I was like, who are these people? Yeah. I don't know them. <laughs>
1: no, completely. <laughs> yeah. And it was a packed house, the second one. i
5: must have control of your radio set. You're about to The most creepiest is stories from the the cre- Ha! Well, you're lucky. The Crip Creeper's room is really nearby. He'll cut your head off. He'll paint you full of lead. Then, he'll squirt you with a whole bunch of glue. Then, he'll eat you alive like that but if you're lucky you won't get crumpled up like this other person did then you got squashed like a bug beware beware of the keeper. he might put you through the torture dungeon where they pull you cut you then they pull you a little more. Then they slap you. Then they hit you against the wall. Then, if you're lucky, you'll get to eat the food if you last.
1: Calculated <laughs> 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 nose ha lettuce.
0: Calculated nose hairs, let us 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 calculated nose hairs, let us
3: calculated nose hairs,
4: let us uh. This young kid that I know named Sean Thomas Blott. He runs, uh, I think he's Scott Reader's like assistant in Detroit. But he was running this space called Bahamas Biennale, which was uh, in Milwaukee for a short period of time, a little artist-run gallery. And I think it's in Detroit now. But I was sitting at one of the book fairs, and he just came and was keeping me company because those get pretty boring. You just kind of sit at a table and say the same thing over and over again. So there's always an extra chair, and sometimes a buddy comes and hangs out with you and sort of keeps you entertained and. He's, he's got his phone with him and he says to me, you got to check out this video, man. And he showed me the, um, is it head on fire, ring the alarm, just the, the, the video of you lighting your hair on fire repeatedly. Oh. And he showed me that, and I don't think at the time that I really made the connection that uh, you also had a bunch of pieces in that Dada Ria show or something like that. And I was just like, what is this? And he was like, it's this guy, Brian. And he started telling me about the work and stuff. And what is wrong with him? Uh, yeah, What? What? what's the, I feel like a ton of people have seen
1: that video, obviously, but what is, why did what you make What? Is, why did you make it? <laughs> Well, because I'm an idiot. (laughs) From the get-go, let's make that very well-known. I am an idiot, stupid idiot that needs attention. So that would be the number one reason. But um, I remember as a kid, like now talking about kindergarten, one of my favorite books was of pirates. And so there was this one pirate that when he would board a different ship he was taking over, he would twist his beard into small little wicks and light them all on fire. Oh, to so strike they, fear into yeah, the heart of the people? Yeah. <laughs> so I would say if there was an origin, it would be there. Um, in my 20s, I spent a lot of times acting the fool and stuff like that and um, gravitated foolishly towards, um, you know, just maniacs. So, um, yeah, it has, has something to do with that, trying to be way out there um
4: are you actually lighting your hair on fire in it or is there some sort of medium that you're using to cause that
1: yeah i'm lighting my hair on fire (coughs) so i'm using uh (laughs) rubbing alcohol
4: (laughs) but there's no sort of like i think uh well, it's there's, like, a YouTube video of it, and then I think there are, like, clone videos that people, the same video, just different people have uploaded it to try to get, um, I don't know, people look at their channel or something, but huh. I've seen a couple of comments where people are like, it's fake, I looked at, you know, like, one minute and 11 seconds in, you can clearly see that this is fake, or he's <laughs> using that, uh, whatever the flame retardant is. Um, stuff that they use in movies is i get when they douse someone with it and then light them on fire or something that where maybe it doesn't really burn your skin but it burns right above it but i guess rubbing alcohol is pretty flammable to be dumping on your hair that you're really lighting your head on fire
1: yeah i mean it I, luckily i have a, um you know i do it when i haven't cut my hair for a while so so you can get rid of it quickly yeah and also um I, there's always a pail of water on set uh-huh. um how many times have you done this I don't know, <laughs> 20 times, something like that. Um, you know, we were talking about doing it for people, Pie Pool, um, but there had to be, you know, in, up until the the last week where we were all in the theater working, mm-hmm. I thought we were going to do it, but it involved a great deal of paperwork.
4: Oh, to make it so that you could set something on fire in
1: uh, <coughs> at Abrams. Yeah, 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 and... um how I got that gig was actually I'd done a performance at um, the previous summer at Serpentine. And I, I, I did a, a performance with uh, Tyson Reeder, Jamian, uh, Volani, um, Matthew Thurber, Billy Grant. And uh, we did a performance there. And at the end of the performance, I set my head on fire. And, you know, I had to not tell them. Because they wouldn't, you know, no theater in their right mind would allow that to happen. Of course. So, I don't know, with Abrams, I felt that I didn't want to push their buttons like that. Yeah, no,
4: they're they're pretty like, you know, they seem like a wholesome organization. Yeah. Part of the Henry Street settlement and stuff. I'm glad that you respected their...
1: Yeah, (laughs) no, I didn't want to do that. Plus, my mom was in the audience um, for both nights, Mm -hmm. and it would have just killed her. Yeah. I mean, she hates it. She uh, she just begs me, please do not do this again. <coughs> please. Please, Brian. Will you promise me you won't do this again?
4: And do you feel like she, uh, does she, quote unquote, get your art? Or does she does she respond to it? Does she like it?
1: Yeah, I've been super privileged to have incredible parents that have been nothing but supportive my entire life. I've been spoiled rotten by their support, you know. Um, yeah,
4: that's pretty cool. I think it's, uh, I mean, I think about that a lot too, in making work and thinking about if, you know, could, could my mom and dad, uh, look at this, if I sent it to them and then if they're, you know, out for pizza or something with some of their friends, could they, you know, just say to their friends, what it is that I do. And I kind of think that that's important that, that, that there's these different tiers of accessibility in something. I mean, I don't know if I've talked about that on the, uh, podcast before but i think i talk about it in teaching quite a bit about wanting that you know someone with a phd in art history let's say could come to something like people pie pool and be like oh i can understand the references to data and the different nods and things like that and then like a 12 year old a 12 year old could come to it and just get a kick out of it and like yeah. have an experience and i think that that like uh, and, and I don't think that it's a spectrum from high to low. I think it's a lateral spectrum of just where people's experiences are, their exposure to different things. I, I love stuff that has something for different people. That's why I was asking about like, you know, dear folks, are they responsive to it? Cause I think that that's, that's usually a pretty good barometer. Like if your parents are, uh, you know, don't actively hate you. And they're able to, and you know, because of course everybody doesn't have the same experience. But yeah. if, if if you know your folks and they're generally supportive and they can look at your stuff and kind of be like, oh yeah, okay, you know, I don't wish you wouldn't let your hair on fire, but you know, the other stuff is, <laughs> the other stuff is pretty cool. Then it seems like you're kind of making, uh, you might be in a good pocket for the work that you're making, you know, if it yeah. has that kind of, uh, if regular ass folks can look at it.
1: Yeah, you yeah, know, <laughs> completely. I mean, that's... You know, I I think that one of those unifying elements is comedy, you know, slipping on a banana peel or, you know, taking a fall is a universal symbol that does get everybody kind of giggling to themselves.
4: Yeah, most people really, uh, most people like to watch, and and it's the, I mean, there's always that moment where you uh, subconsciously make sure that the person isn't hurt, but the brain works really quickly. When you see that they aren't hurt, then you start laughing. Yeah, Like there's a, a millisecond of that. Uh, I feel like it happened. And it's also a it's a release that people have. Uh, it's out of nervousness sometimes, too. Like when you see somebody wipe out on their bike, and you're just like, oh, my God. And then they like pop up, and you're like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like just a huge relief. Um, So with the accessibility and stuff, too, I want to get to your fascination uh, with art that's produced by children. But just right before that, I also wanted to talk about it. Uh, I guess it was would have been 2014. It was when I was still part of Essex Flowers, um, which for anybody listening who isn't familiar with it, it's like this artist run gallery that uh, now is on Monroe Street. But uh, at the time, it was relatively young. And we had been offered this opportunity to do what's called a cultural partner booth, which is one of the smaller booths at NADA at the art fair here in New York and there's all this like internal debate about whether or not we should do it, because it's an artist-run space, and do we do it fair? Or is that selling out, or what are these problems or something? And I think it was um, Van, Hanos, was yeah. part of it at the time, and he kind of came with a solution. He said, we're going to do a solo show of Brian's work. And everybody was kind of like, yeah, yeah, we could, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. We'll do that. That works. Like, everybody was okay with that. And then you, uh, we installed... work and it was just it was like hundreds of envelopes and scraps of paper and just crazy drawings and things like that you'd made and just we just plastered the whole it was a four by six foot space it was really little but covered it and i remember um i don't know which day of the fair it was but there was a group of uh school children that for some reason were being given a tour of nada and they kind of came around and they're looking at the different stuff and you know some some art kind of pops to kids and they're like oh that's exciting or this or that but they just kind of lost it when they came around and saw the Essex Flower space that had all of your drawings in it. And you just happened to be on site at the time and you like came around the corner and saw all these kids in front of the stuff and you just plopped down with them and started grabbing your work off the wall and giving it to them. And then they were scribbling all over it. And I remember the people from NADA were just like, oh, okay, no, we can't have that happen. <laughs> they, they they maintained a pretty good sense of humor about it. But it was very funny because then you were just giving the work to the kids. And you were like, here, you can have this. You can take it with you. And they were, and you could clearly see that they were like, oh, that, there's supposed to be a checklist when things go out of the space and things like that. And you were just like ripping this stuff down <laughs> and giving it to the kids, um, which at the time I didn't know that you had such like a deep affinity for children's art I, I just thought i was like oh this dude's getting a kick out of like who doesn't love it when a group of kindergartners or whatever like love your work that's yeah. great you know no, you're, you know you're doing something positive but um the the more recent shows the last few years you've done this thing dr kid president jr that was at uh first at twenty four seven three sixty five. 365 yeah here in new mm-hmm. york and then you did one in la yeah
1: yeah um, it's called The Pancake ep- Epidemic.
4: And then, um, yeah, and then recently at Gavin Brown here in New York again. Yeah. Because um, that's a really interesting story. Can you talk about where Dr. Kid President Jr. came from and how it changed between these three spaces? Because it was over the course of about two years between the shows, right? Yeah. Total, like they happened yeah, 2015, think, 16, 17? That's it, yeah. So how did you come across uh, this treasure trove of children's art and, and how did you end up getting access to it?
1: Well, um, let's see. So my my two mothers are teachers, so I've always hung out with teachers. Um, I would party with teachers. Even my mom taught at my school. Ooh. Yeah, Did you ever have, school. ever have her as a teacher? Yeah, I had her. Really? Social studies. Was that hard? No.
4: No? It was fine. That was in Jersey? In Jersey. That's yeah. cool. Well, I had some friends who had their parents were teachers at the school, and I was always like, what is this like? And then when I reflected, I'm like, my dad was my soccer coach for like an extremely long time. It was the exact same thing. Yeah. He was just like the person in charge.
1: <laughs> yeah, no no, it was it was awesome. I feel bad for my mom cuz I was always a cut up and getting thrown out of class by her. Not by her. Oh, I mean, by she her knew how team, to, yeah. you know, get me to stand upright <laughs> with just a simple glare. <laughs> but um I guess my point is is that I've been surrounded by teachers and also have had uh over access to school. So even as a kid, I was collecting children's art. Um, I feel that a lot of kid, I mean, um, artists collect children's art or fish it out of the garbage can or save a crunched-up drawing they find on the subway platform. Um, a lot of times, artists gravitate towards children's art because of the unusual ways the uh, kids see the world mm-hmm. and, and translate how they see the world. With a certain... Lack of rendering skills. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, another thing that I do is I make copies. I've made copies, you know, ever since I was in college at SVA, I would decide to copy somebody. And, and for me, it wasn't important if the copies could. I think that a crappy copy of... Van Gogh or Picasso or even Mirandi can be really interesting um, so anyhow I it was around 2015 and I was up in Vermont and um, I you know was isolated from the world a little bit and you know um, were you living there or were you doing some kind of like artist residency or something uh, no my, uh, my girlfriend uh, Annie Perlman is from Vermont and from the Vermont studio center, particularly specifically. And so um, we would go up there and it would be a great time to just get away from everything. And um, her parents are both painters. So they would give us their studios and we would just be, you know, snug as a bug in a rug, just painting and coming up with stuff. So, um i hadn't done copies in a long while and i'm just kind of explaining that like you know when cut off from like what am i supposed to do uh in new york like as an artist what is the professional move you mean based on you know because you well because you're going to stuff and
4: seeing things all the time and also responding to all the stimuli of like well what should i be doing if these people over here are doing this or like am i doing enough and then but the vacuum's kind of nice
1: yeah, exactly. So the professional shuffle had been put on mute. And now I was like, I had been collecting whatever um, book I could get on children's art off of eBay, no matter what I, um, I, I was collecting. And I was like, what the hell, let's start start up the copying again. So I started copying children's art. Um, so when I was doing that, I... Uh, what I noticed from collecting all these books is this one writer Rhoda Kellogg. She kept on coming up and um, you know, a lot of the children's art books that I found were about using children's art as a tool to measure intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, even a tool to measure trauma, dysfunction, um, or even darker stuff. You know, like violence in the home or sexual abuse. Um, There's even children's books about, you know, children from concentration camps or, uh, you know. So I leaned a little bit away from that sort of stuff. I don't necessarily, you know, I didn't copy any images of children's art from concentration camps.
4: That seems like a wise decision
1: I, it it wasn't about wise i just wanted to focus on the celebration of children's art right and, or
4: or the kind of like self they're simply expressing themselves in a way that's sort of like uninhibited or uh with like reckless abandon as yeah a, as opposed to the art being a processing tool or a response mechanism just what do, what does a
1: kid who's left to their own devices do is that yeah kind of where the interest was completely and and so when I, I was collecting everything under the sun off of eBay and Amazon. Rhoda came up over and over again in her several volumes as someone who just loved children's art and held it up as this like wonderment to behold. Mm -hmm. Didn't use it as some type of head shrinking uh, measuring device, but was enthralled and spellbound by, um, children's art and wanted to share it with the audience and um so you know and when was she she was working this is
4: decades ago right because she passed away um in 1986
1: in 1986 okay so
4: this is this is from you know a bit before you know your life or my life or anything like that oh yeah yeah
1: she was born in 1898 whoa yeah and uh, i forget that that's a real year that people like lived in yeah, that is insane, right? I mean, my grandfather, one of them was from 1913. But you think about the 1800s, and uh-huh. the horse and carriages, and no, no refrigerators, or just a block of ice. being
4: Spanish flu, all yeah. these kinds of <laughs> yeah. Pretty insane. Um, so Rhoda's books are kind of, and, and you stumble across these, basically. It's just somebody keeps coming up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would literally just at the end of the night before turning in go on eBay looking on children's art, children's drawings, children's paintings, and looking up the these searching these out, and um, there were several books that were the ones that really just hit me over the head as as definitive books about children's art, but again, like ones that we're just kind of plunging into the the amazing visions that are in, in that uh, realm mm-hmm. and really um presenting them with kind of love, joy, awe, uh, admiration. Mm-hmm. Um but Rhoda was uh yeah, I mean an intense figure that that I was lucky enough to learn a lot more about because uh in this the last um Version of Dr. Kidd President Jr. with had up but happened in Harlem, Mm -hmm. and so, um, when confronted with that massive space, I started to think, okay, well, I'll have my copies, I'm gonna have a classroom, I'd really like to involve, um, something historical. So, I remembered these books, the Rhoda Kellogg books, and I remembered also that. In the books, um, you know, so the earliest book I have from her is a nursery school guide from 1949. Um, But in the later books, I think the last book is from the early 80s, she is toting or bragging about having over a million examples of children's art. Mm -hmm. So my guess was, is it was still in existence. So um, I went on the internet. I I found it kind of confusing. She doesn't have a wiki page. I don't Mm. understand that. But I did find out that the school that she taught at, and then later found out that she actually designed, uh, called the Golden Gate Nursery in San Francisco, still existed. And so I contacted them and asked, hey, where where are these drawings? And... um, They're like, who the hell are you? (laughs) Pretty much. But but, uh, the thing was, is that no one had really asked about these drawings for decades. Mm -hmm. So... They were surprised that anyone was interested. Yeah,
4: and well, uh, especially if you're getting this stuff off eBay or getting it like secondhand, so there's not like they're not noticing this resurgence of sale. <laughs> you know, nobody's yeah. keeping track of that. You're getting them from all these random
1: people or something. And yeah, sort of
4: quietly building this like insane
1: interest. Completely, um, but I was uh, I was blown away at just how fate would have it. The collection was no longer in San Francisco, but was in Connecticut. And so it was close by. She got a family there or something? or No, it was a strange group of coincidences where at some point in around 2001 or two, a photographer said that he would photograph everything in the collection. Okay. I'll just tell you now, like, that's almost impossible. <laughs> I mean, it would take years to do that.
4: So she was serious with the numbers that she had. She was yeah. not... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know how you count a million, but it would no, that doesn't. Either, but man. that doesn't seem like an offensive
1: exaggeration to you. No, no, no. Uh, and, and so, what happened was is the photographer took on this job, and then freaked out and ran out of town. <laughs> that's a, that's exactly what happened. So the the guy freaked out, ran out of town. Um, one of the uh, teachers who's um, now a a close friend of mine, um, Jen DeJoya, is... From the school in uh, San Francisco? She actually worked at the school in the um, late uh, 90s, early 2000s, and then moved back to Connecticut, where she was from. Okay. Um, and she found the photographer, and then the photographer went south. She had to go to his lair and save the entire collection, box it up, and it... And it's been in a storage locker ever since.
4: Just sitting in Connecticut. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In a, just a really just poisonous storage locker with peeling paint and, you know, the smell in the air is of uh, mothballs and arsenic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, you know, and so when I uh, went over there, I was confronted with this crazy room with like boxes that were easily 15 feet up in the air just a room just packed like the last scene of um indiana jones where do you start um we just jumped in yeah and this was uh now going back a year Mm -hmm. so i've been visiting the archive or storage locker now i've probably gone 10 times maybe 12 times i don't know Every, every time i go now i I, I make sure to go for, like, three days. Mm-hmm. And I normally dive into the material for 10-hour sessions. I'm obsessed. Mm-hmm. What I found was is R- Rhoda's obsessed, too. And yeah. Her obsession Clearly. <laughs> resonated mine. Um, It's a shame you didn't get to meet her. It's like this. I, I mean, I'm sure she'd
4: be uh, thrilled to know that there's like this artist in New York who just went bonkers over, like, the work that she did in this collection that she had. And to know that it sort of had this life way beyond her life that went into an entirely different realm uh with reverence you know not like a not just copying because it's like oh isn't this ironic or funny that children draw legs really weird or something but like a clearly a very deep sincere interest in it
1: yeah
3: I'm down in the underground, hey, hey, I'm down, I'm down, hey, hey, I'm down in the underground, way, 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 way. down, with an yeah, hey, yeah, hey, yeah, hey, yeah, down in the underground, yeah, yeah, hey, yeah, hey, hey, uh, oh, uh, oh, oh, oh. hey, yeah, I'm down in that, yeah, I'm down in the underground, hey, hey, yeah, 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 I'm into underground. Hey hey, I'm down in the underground. Hey, I'm down. Hey, hey, I'm down in the underground. Nobody asked me what hey, hey hey I'm down in the underground. Hey, 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 hey. hey. I'm just down in the underground. Yeah. I hey hey. I'm down in the underground. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. I'm down in the underground. Way down, way down, way down, under the dirt. Under the grass, under the dirt is. Where the yet people live. I'm on the ground, down, 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 down. With bones. With bones. the bones, bones, bones. Hey, 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 yeah. Hey, hey, yeah. Hey, hey, yeah. Hey, 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 yeah. Hey, 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 yeah, hey, 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 yeah, hey, 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 yeah, down in underground now. Hey, what is that? That is this, and, and it is
1: that, that is that, and, and this is this. What is that? That is this, this is that, that is that, and this is this. What is that? Is this, and is this. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, um, she just seems tremendous, and I don't really understand how um, she's fallen in between the cracks other than that she's a woman and a teacher. And those are things that our culture doesn't value or not sure. on the top shelf. Um, sounds probably why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it's also kind of um, disturbing because I feel that children's art, um, you know, I mean, so many of the modernist masters were obsessed with children's art. We have all those comments uh, that Picasso made, but of course we have Paul Clay, we have Kandinsky, we have, you know, the list just goes on and on mm-hmm. the, the people who are influenced by children's art. You have the Cobra movement. Um, but there's no way in hell that children's art will be commodified. And because of that, It is worthless in Mm -hmm. our culture, but it doesn't stop there. If you can't commodify something, then what is is the the class almost is almost worthless. You know, I know I'm going a little bit. The class? Do you mean the educational environment or the? You know, of course I'm an artist. I I didn't flourish in school until I came up against the arts. Mm -hmm. I. Kind of struggled in school. I hated school somewhat. Um, what what I'm saying is is that like you know outsider art has been commodified over the past thirty years. Sure, as it should be, but children's art will probably never be commodified. Um,
4: And you're not saying that in a pejorative sense necessarily, you mean in a way that's valued so that, if I'm following correctly, so that people actually put some stock in art education and think that it's important. Yeah. So not that it's important to commodify outsider artists, but rather that the <clears throat> sort of saying this does have value, there's some good in that. Yeah. And the same thing could be said if people actually valued the, the art that children are making and recognizing that giving them art education and classes and things like that is actually very, very good for them. Yeah. But, yeah because there's a, but because there's no one-to-one direct result where it's like, Oh, we can monetize this then like STEM or like any kind of like tech thing, then of course it's
1: not valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also why, you know, maybe I was the only person knocking on these people's doors to see this archive mm-hmm. in a couple decades. And then I also think about this like priceless uh, collection of of this uh, trailblazing woman's work that has gone unnoticed. Like how it's all at my studio right now, or good good amount of it is at my studio. And I don't know. It's just it's not in between glassine. It's it's and you know I I don't know. I just think about how. Teachers have enough their hands filled with living students. Yeah. And there's such little money and appreciation given towards teachers that they couldn't care for this incredible archive historical archive. Right. Yeah. Something and, that And some- my dumb ass just comes knocking on their door and now gets access to this. It just blows me away.
4: Right. I mean, it seems like something that, you know, in an alternate reality where people's uh values were a little bit more holistic or or thoughtful that something that's a collection like that it would it would have a museum it would have some kind of space where people could go and experience it that would then have this trickle down or like reverberating effect of like oh children's arts really valuable look at this institution that says
1: that it is so of course we should keep it in school i mean that yeah the Completely. kind of it, that's definitely the idea like I, i'm trying to collaborate with Jen DeJoya about that idea down the road. Mm -hmm. That is what the the exhibition at Harlem was about, was having a a historical classroom, which is Rhoda's collection, and then a living classroom, Mm -hmm. and have them side by side, and have them kind of fuel and communicate between each other, and to have kids surrounded by their own art instead of being surrounded by the masters, whoever the hell they are.
4: Right, so you... For anybody who didn't uh, catch the show, it was uh, several of the copies that you had made, but the vast majority of the show was works that you had selected from Rhoda's collection that were all sort of like framed and hung in the space. And then there was a sort of wallpaper that you had created based on the children's drawings. And then sort of in the center of the space was this active classroom that students from schools in Harlem and the surrounding area could come and they would take classes and then their work was installed in the show too. And then there was like an event for that and stuff like yeah. that, right? Yeah. yeah. So basically hybridizing all of this stuff and, and putting it in there. I mean, I think that that's, when I saw the show, what really popped for me was all of those extra layers of things that, you know, so many people kind of are tourists of naive art or outsider art and just kind of jump in and go, isn't that funny to draw like that or take this thing or steal something from folk artists or uh, communities that are, you know, marginalized and just borrowing aesthetics from them freely without considering any of the ramifications of what they're doing and then yeah but the fact that children's art is so kind of just tossed to the side you're presenting this thing that makes people very uh cognizant of i mean everybody likes it yeah you know like everybody thinks it's great when they see the way that a kid draws a tree i mean it's hilarious and it's charming and it's cool and it makes you start to think and it does all these things but yeah it's they get tossed away except You know, your parents have a little box with a few things at home or something that maybe you drew.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, even uh, what's uh, amazing is before the tree is drawn, you have finger paintings. And like one of these, um, uh, the amazing thing about Rhoda Kellogg is, is that when she wound up moving to San Francisco, she actually lived in Brooklyn with her first husband and her daughter who passed away. And after that happened, and it happened at a young age, um, she divorced her husband and then went around the world uh, and then went to San Francisco. Um, Now, when she went to San Francisco, some of the first kindergartens in the U.S. were set up in San Francisco, the Golden Gate Nursery. And they were set up, uh, Hurst, Hurst's mom had set up some of the first kindergartens. So George Hurst, um, the, the plane guy? Oh, <laughs> I'm
4: thinking of a I don't know, maybe maybe they're related to each other I just rewatched Deadwood, this TV show the, There's a guy, George Hurst, in it Who I think is a real person
0: Mr. Hurst
4: Have you enjoyed yourself today, Farnham?
0: For reasons I find elusive The day has
2: quite displeased what me What will help you find a name for your feelings? Shall we cut open your belly For you to wrap your guts around a pole? You seem distraught I am not! I await an outcome! And the readying for it wearies me. Oh, dear. Have you smelt human flesh on the spit? How would I?
0: I know the smell. You have been to and fro in the world. It pleased me to find out. Well, then, fine.
4: He was, like, mining out west. So I was like, George Hurst built the school. But, no, clearly, those are, (laughs) planes happened way
1: after that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, the, the newspaper guy okay Uh, i don't but i'm
4: pretending like i do but i don't uh, but but cool okay so
1: so anyhow like the the schools had when rhoda went there had only been kindergartens had only been around in existence for about 60 years and um rhoda immediately plunged her her early her earliest three books were all dedicated to the earliest stages of children's art Mm -hmm. so her first book was about Nursery schools. Her second book was called "Babies Need Dads Too," and her third book was about finger painting in the classroom. And these books kind of outline the A to Z of how to present finger painting. And then her um, fourth book or fifth book was on scribbling. So she really focused in on these earlier stages. developmental stages as almost kind of these amazing riddles of the Sphinx because she adored some of these things and held them right uh, side by side with um, artwork made by adults. Mm -hmm. So the show had... Finger paintings from the 50s. So I c- can't help but think about all of the AbEx guys who were running around drinking, <laughs> trying to get back to this yeah. <laughs> finger painting um, state. Yeah, 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 And the kids came um, by, by the finger painting state in the most honest and wide-eyed and beautiful way. Yeah, yeah. Versus a tortured soul mm-hmm. way that it was happening by adults trying to... To revisit that. Mm-hmm. Um, but another thing I'd have to say about the exhibition up in Harlem was I'd never seen a space work harder for a uh, exhibition ever. And, sure. And so the space um, had a, you know, it's like a factory space. And so it had a loading docks, which was humongous, great, rolled, mm-hmm. rolled, great. That was open most of the time.
4: Yeah, yeah. When I came, it was open and uh, it was great because folks who were walking by in the street who, you know, probably typically would have been like, what, I, I don't know, I don't care. It's an art gallery or whatever and just kept exactly. going, um, came in and, and the children's work on the wall really grabbed their attention. I think I was talking to um, uh, Marquita Flowers. Marquita yeah. Works Marquita works there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's, she's wonderful.
1: Um, but She helped so much with the, the exhibition. She yeah. She set up... Um, the whole, uh, you know, all the classes that came. Yeah, you know, was she was talking about
4: the different yeah. uh, people that were teaching and stuff. And I was I was going to write about the show. And I was like, so who's teaching the classes? And she was like, that's not important. What's important is that the classes are happening. And I was like, I like that. Like she, I was like, I know it's a like kind of famous artists. And she was like, I don't need to tell you who's teaching them. That's not, that doesn't matter. Like, that's it doesn't awesome. matter to the kids. And I was like, that's great. Yeah. Um, but while we were standing there, it was open and a woman came in. And she was just kinda of like, you know, like what is going on in here? And marquis said, Oh, we have classes um, you know, whenever it was like Saturdays or Sundays or, or whenever it was and blah, blah blah and you can come back, it's open to the public and it's free and the woman was like, It's like totally free, I can just bring like my kids and they can come in here and they can use all this stuff and she was like yeah and then we'll put their art up and it'll be there and then we're having this event and like gave her a flyer and the woman was like are you serious? And she was like yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, was like, I was like that's like you know all, all all things considered in terms of the art world and how fucked up everything is that exactly. was a pretty that was a pretty lovely moment to just be standing in there and see something like that happen and just be like wow what a and clearly Marquita's very good at her job and yeah. and really it seems like the space put a lot into that show i mean it was a big risk too
1: like yeah. i mean just well, most of that stuff isn't really like a saleable object. Yeah, no know? not nothing sold. There was only <laughs> two two things to be sold they didn't sell but <laughs> um yeah, I mean I I thought it was um I don't know. I mean the the final celebration reminded me of like a, a family end of summer. Celebration and you know, ones that don't happen for me anymore, yeah. because it
4: was the kids who took the classes and their families
1: were invited, yeah, and things like that, too, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was, <laughs> I mean, it's probably very, more fun very than the touching. opening, like it was crazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so th- having that roll top thing, like, because, like, we pointed out how much energy it takes to have just a, a normal pedestrian grab the doorknob of an art gallery and open it up sure it's almost intense that's not going to happen no it's really intense i've talked
4: about it a lot but just because just because galleries are free doesn't mean that people feel like they're enfranchised to go into them exactly I mean, it doesn't matter that they're free there's a whole exactly there are a whole lot of barriers in the way that have yeah. nothing to do with paying an entry fee it's also very unclear if you're supposed to pay to yeah. a lot of people <laughs> just like i don't like clearly it's not set up for you you have to be in the know to feel yeah. like you can go yeah. in and but, that and that's not afforded to everyone.
1: Completely. But the huge gate that was just like mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was unreal. And then to have the wallpaper, I, I kinda wanted to make this feeling of like a secular church. So I think people even you know, when I would come by uh in a car, like someone would be like, Where are you going? you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> The secular church dedicated to children's art. Yeah. <laughs> um,
4: um, so what, uh, I mean, now that the show's happened, what, do you have uh, future plans for this work? Or are you just kind of sort of decompressing and like still going through? I mean, clearly you'll never get through all of the
1: work that's in that storage locker. but I'm trying. But do you have any plans for? Well, the plan is just to, to have it move around. Like, I mean, if it was up to me, it would be great if it just, continually moved around yeah um there should be a smithsonian
4: of children's art on the dc mall yeah Yeah. i would absolutely i would go to that 10 times over before i'd go to the uh air and space museum yeah which is i don't know
1: i mean the air and space museum is fine but like i'd like the frozen ice cream that's about it
4: (laughs) oh yeah they have the astronaut (laughs) astronaut or the dehydrated ice ice cream yeah yeah yeah, dehydrated exactly it's like dipping dots oh man um Cool. Well, before we round this out, I wanted to uh, pose what maybe is sort of a philosophical question in terms of your interest in this Uh kind of like um, the reckless abandon of children's art, the kind of excitability of Dada, and trying to challenge yourself or do things that you would hate or would be the opposite of you and things like that. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about the value of absurdity uh, right now. Maybe whether that is whether being absurd is a political stance or if it's simply something to kind of like in a way uh, maintain some mental health by just working it all out and being as crazy as physically possible. Or or what do you what do you think is the value of absurdity for people in the art world or beyond right now? Uh, (laughs) uh, um... What's valuable for you in absurdity? Like, what do you get out of it?
1: Well, I mean, I feel that most of the time people are supposed to pretend like they're in control of themselves, of their personalities, of their situations, but yet we're in a big mystery and our language is collapsing all the time and we're filled with insecurities And we're a bundle of nerves, especially in New York City. So if you can go directly into that live wire and play with it and kind of like, yeah, I mean, play is the operative word. Cause a a disaster, um, one that is um, not going to cause you or anyone else some pain you could actually kind of have a nervous laugh and kind of release the tension that is occurring between humans. I like that.
4: Yeah, I think that's a great reason to do it. No, to shake people up. And I mean, there's a such a long history in uh, art, especially kind of art and I guess like pseudo activism on the left and things like that, where the, a lot of the gestures are meant to just kind of shake you up and get you to like break the, break the routine, stop thinking exactly through the status quo or what you're supposed to do or how you're supposed to live and things like that. And just to do something a little bit weird ruptures that kind of, uh, ruptures the veneer for a second and shows people that there's a different way to kind of do
1: things, which I think is,
4: you know, probably
1: very helpful right now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think about like, you know, isn't things, aren't things funner when you can dance? And I don't know. I, I, are you a song and dance man? Well, listen, I love <laughs> dance and I love the song and dance man, and I I love Fred Astaire, or Gene Kelly, or you know. But my point is, is that I'm not a great dancer or whatever. And a lot of times when I would go to a party, I would normally drink a lot before I get comfortable to, to dance and mm-hmm. flail around like a fool. But I just think the life would be better if you, once you allow your body to just kind of play around yeah you can shake off some of that tension around the neck and i don't know i think if people sung and danced their points rather than got all caught up in in being right at times or serious that this would be a much funner bus ride (laughs) you know
4: I like that. I'm now imagining people arguing through song. And that, I mean, I already i already feel better about it. I already, I love the idea of having to art to sing, argue with somebody. That's really great. Um, cool. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on Humor in the Abject. Uh, it was wonderful getting to talk to you. And I can't wait to see what's next for the Kellogg collection. I'm sure you'll be uh, immersed in that. And thank I think, you so much for having me. Yeah. And I think no matter what happens, it's going to be it's going to be all for the better. We got to we got to give the kids their day. Got to give them their due. Thank you. Okay, thanks everybody. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Bye.